a masterful survey of wealth and poverty in the United States and around the world, and a meditation on the meaning of knishes and orange soda. On Uncommon Knowledge today, Dr. Thomas Sowell. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. After growing up in North Carolina and Harlem, Thomas Sowell worked in a machine shop, served as a delivery man for Western Union, tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and served during the Korean War in the United States Marine Corps. After his discharge, Dr. Sowell received his undergraduate degree from Harvard, his master's from Columbia, and his doctorate from the University of Chicago. Dr. Sowell has taught economics at institutions such as Cornell, UCLA, and Amherst. The author of more than a dozen books, Dr. Sowell has served since 1980 as a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Dr. Sowell's latest publication, a new edition of his classic work, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. Dr. Thomas Sowell, welcome. Thank you. The big ideas. There are a handful of big themes that run all the way through wealth, poverty, and politics. One of the themes, and I'm quoting from the book now, it is not the origins of poverty which need to be explained. What requires explaining are the things that created and sustained higher standards of living. What do you mean by that? Well, there, there are actually books uh, with titles and subtitles about the origins of poverty. Well, the entire human species began in poverty. So I don't know how, how we want to say, what, what is the origin uh, of this, perhaps in the Garden of Eden or, or someplace? Poverty but, is... But more than yeah, that, okay. more, more, more than that, you're trying to explain why some countries are poor rather than, try, rather than trying to explain why other countries are, are more, more prosperous. Uh, there's no explanation needed for poverty. The, the, the species began in poverty. So what you really need to know is how, what are the things that enable some countries and some groups within countries uh, to become prosperous. Okay. Further, continuing that point, I just want to dig out this sort of big overriding theme. Again, I'm quoting Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. Quote, one of the key implicit assumptions of our time is that many economic and social outcomes would tend to be either even or random. Everybody would finish up in the same place if left to the natural course of events so that the strikingly uneven and non-random, rich people, poor people, rich countries, poor country, the strikingly uneven and non-random outcomes so often observed in the real world imply some adverse human intervention. Close quote. Why, is that, why has that become an implicit assumption? So common that you need to bat it down again and again in this book. Well, why is that something you have to ask the people who believe that? But, <laughs> okay. if, but, but if you're asking, does it have any validity, the easy answer is no. That if you start just with geographic things, uh, geography is not even. Uh, the, the rivers of the world are not, not equally usable by human beings. Uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, the Zaire River, which starts in Central Africa and goes great distances to the ocean, uh, it has more water than the Mississippi. But it's not as valuable as the Mississippi because he ha it has all sorts of waterfalls, cascades, mm -hmm. and so on. So there's only a certain distance you can go on the Zaire River. I mean, it's a more picturesque river, but to an economist, it's awful because it means that you've uh, isolated great numbers of people. Uh, in, a, in a period of about 150 miles, there are, I forget, some huge number of 
cascades and waterfalls, uh, adding up to a drop of about 1,000 feet. On the Mississippi, the riverbed goes down four inches per mile. Those are different rivers, right. but everything is different. You, the, the, the ground is different, the, the air is different, the t everything. Okay, again I'm quoting, continuing on this theme, the implicit assumption of evenness or randomness of outcomes in the absence of human interventions has been enough to turn a search for causation into a search for blame. Where do you find that? Well, if all the, pre, if all the background conditions are such as would lead to equality of outcomes, right. and you find great inequalities, then somebody must have messed with it. Right. But as uh, economic historian David Landy said, you know, the world has never been a level playing field. It's not a level playing field geographically, culturally, politically, you name it, it's not. All right. Um, Tom, I am hoping to use uh, wealth, poverty, and politics. I'm hoping to use this conversation to apply the lessons of wealth, poverty, and politics to the current American scene and have you tell me what to think about certain statements and certain, well, you'll get the idea. Here's a quotation from Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator who nearly won the Democratic presidential nomination. Quote, quoting Bernie Sanders, while there are some great corporations, this is the question of causation versus blame, while there are some great corporations trying to do the right thing, in my view, and I say this very seriously, the greed of the billionaire class, <laughs> The, the greed, this is not supposed to be funny, he just, I say this very seriously, the greed of the billionaire class, the greed of Wall Street is destroying the lives of millions of Americans, close quote. What uh, do we make of that? Uh, uh, it, it's astonishing, but I think even more astonishing is how many people voted for Bernie Sanders at a time where... Uh, in socialist Venezuela, people are starving. They're breaking into stores in, a, in their desperation to get some food. They're crossing the borders into the other countries to, to stave off starvation. In a country that, ha that has, has uh, one of the world's largest supplies of oil, that they've managed to do that in that country. And people are so utterly insulated from facts that the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders uh, paints a very beautiful picture is all that matters. Mm. All right. One of the themes in uh, wealth, poverty, and politics, isolation. Mm. You talk, you've already spoken a little bit about geography, isolation. You do this a dozen different times. You take different aspects of reality, economic reality, and explain how they affect economic development. So mm. here's, but of course, we only have time for a few, but here, isolation. Quote, isolation is a recurring factor in poverty and backwardness around the world, close quote. And you note that people who live in mountains, Afghanistan, Appalachia, you couldn't ask for more separated mountain communities, and yet you see much the same kind of yes. backwardness. Isolation per se leading to backwardness. Explain that. Well, I, I don't so much explain, explain it as I simply give enormous numbers of examples of it, the right. mountain people being one, people who are living in isolated uh, islands like the Canary Islands. Uh, back, back in the 15th century when the Spaniards conquered the Canary Islands, they found the people there living as people had lived in the Stone Ages. 
in, in Australia, very similar things when the British arrived there in the uh, late 18th century. Uh, they found the Australian Aborigines living uh, again as people lived, had lived elsewhere in the Stone Ages. Right. Uh, you, you find wherever there are enclaves of groups that are isolated from what other groups are doing, uh, you find the same thing, socially isolated, uh, politically isolated, for whatever reason. Uh, what it suggests to me is that an, an, an individual really can do very little without a great number of other things, including what he learns from other human beings. And if you have some group of 3,000 or 2,000 living in some mountain village, uh, whether in uh, Italy or Kashmir, wherever, uh, you're not going to find them keeping abreast of people who are living in port cities and in touch with the whole rest of the human race. Okay. So trade is important? Yes. All right. Here's another. I, I offer you another luminary from the present day. Donald Trump. Quote, we're going to build the wall. We're going to stop Ill illegal immigration. It's going to end. Close quote. Now, couple issues going are tangled up there. One is building the wall. Is that in and of itself something of which we should be suspicious, that he wants to wall off the United States from the kind of, that he wants us to become more isolated? He wants to limit? No, I no? don't. Okay. No. Or is that unfair to Donald Trump? Uh, I haven't given a lot of thought about being fair to Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, no, uh, uh, if, we're, we're, if we're in touch with 99% with of the human race, the fact that we're not in touch with a handful of people relative to the world's population who are trying to come across the southern border doesn't make us isolated. Okay. Uh, one more Trump example here. Quote, take China as an example. I have many friends, Donald Trump speaking, I have many friends, great manufacturers, they want to get, go into China. They can't. China won't let them. China dumps everything that they have over here. We can't get into China. We talk about free trade. It's not free trade. It's stupid trade. Close quote. What do we make of that? Well, this is an argument that's been made for a number of centuries uh, and refuted uh, long ago, that if other people will not, quote, be fair in their trade with you, uh, the, the question is, what is your best line of defense? And the, the best line is to pay no attention to them and engage in free trade, uh, and, you, and you, you'll come out better than if you start a world trade war. You know, there was a world trade war started back in 1930, because people said, look, uh, we, we, we have unemployment, we'll get, get it cured because we'll make the stuff here and that'll create jobs. Uh, people don't seem to think beyond the first stage. Yes, you set off a trade war in which international trade contracted all around the world. Throughout the Great Depression of the 1930s, we had a trade surplus. That shows what a trade surplus will do for you. Okay. Another uh, theme that you discuss in Wealth, Poverty, and Politics inequality. Quote, once we put production at the center of our attention, our surprise at extremes of income and wealth, rich people, poor people, rich countries, poor countries, our surprise at extremes of income and wealth might suggest the question whether there are comparable extremes in the production of wealth mm. and whether these two extremes may have something to do with each other. Setting the possession of wealth aside, to focus on the production of wealth. And that is intellectually more fruitful if you really want to know why some people are poor and some people are rich. That's oh, the ab ab absolutely. Uh, one of the painful things, that I, see, I came from an earlier era when uh, 
Uh, we were taught, you know, that, that the reason we have electric lights is because of Thomas Edison. The reason people can now afford cars, whereas 100 years ago, 1% of the American families had a car, uh, is because Henry Ford figured out how to make cars a lot cheaper. Uh, you know, and various other things, we understood that. You never hear that these days. All you hear is that somebody is rich somehow, that for some reason, like, it dropped out of the sky or something. Uh, and it's true, Bill Gates has more money than, uh, than I guess, some countries. Uh, but, of course, he created more than some countries. Uh, but, at the very, but at the very least, you can ask the question, and you can find out maybe, maybe that wasn't true of others, maybe it wasn't true, yeah. But the fact is, that question is kept off the table in most discussions now. They act as if somehow this guy has all this money, and uh, as if it, it's, it's almost as if you're implicitly assuming a fixed amount of wealth in the world. And if he has more, somebody else must have less. And so you're being quite dispassionate at the moment. But that actually makes you angry because all kinds of people, including students at pretty fancy institutions, mm. but also poor people in mm. this country and elsewhere, are being told, consider the political question. Consider... Consider means of, look, rich people, they must in some way be to blame. For goodness sake, over half of 18 to 25-year-olds said they supported Bernie Sanders. A majority of the youngest voting cohort in this country supported a man who calls himself a socialist. Mm. And your view is, at a minimum, that's going to cost them time. They're wasting time. What they need to understand, you need to understand what are the habits that lead to lead to production, correct? Yes, the, the, the question is why is there wealth in the first place before we get into the question of how it's distributed? Because right. if there's no wealth, there's nothing to distribute. Okay, all right. Another, uh, another of our present-day luminaries, Hillary Clinton, quote, now Tom, <laughs> I haven't even given you the quotation yet. But I'm just thinking of Hillary Clinton as a luminary. All right, quote, economists have documented how the share of income and wealth going to those at the very top has risen sharply over the last generation. Some are calling it a throwback to the gilded age of the robber barons. As Secretary of State, I, Hillary Clinton, I saw the way extreme inequality has corrupted other societies, hobbled growth, and left entire generations alienated and unmoored. That's what happens when your only policy prescription is to cut taxes for the wealthy. Close quote. Now, she says that inequality is dangerous in and of itself. You have too much of it, and you're going to alienate generations, corrupt societies, hobble growth. It, purely as a matter of analysis, is that correct? Do we have evidence that inequality in, its, in and of itself dampens economic no. growth? No. I'd be very interested if she has any. Uh, I, I saw her make the same kind of statement using the 1920s as an example. That was another gilded age. The 1920s was one of the most, were one of, among the most prosperous, uh, high-growth uh, uh, decades in the history of the United States. Uh, I was thinking on the way over here about so someone criticizing uh, President Reagan, and they were saying that uh, when the stock market crashed in 1987, mm -hmm. Reagan did absolutely nothing. And they're saying he should be like Franklin D. Roosevelt and seize, seize control and so forth. Instead, he's acting like Calvin Coolidge. And I thought, you know, under Calvin Coolidge, unemployment reigns from a high of 4.2% to a low of 1.8%. Under Franklin D. Roosevelt, it was over 20% for dozens of years consecutively. Uh, so we live in an age where rhetoric 
prevails, and, and no one cares about the facts. All right. Get ready for this one. Economist Paul Krugman. <laughs> I'm sitting down. Go ahead. All right. Income equality is bad for democracy. I'm going to take another run at you with this one. Mm. Income equality is bad for democracy. The ugliness of our politics is tied to the inequality of income. The people who have the most influence are not interested in having good public services because they don't use them. You just get a bad society. Close quote. So you don't buy you don't buy any of that. You don't buy this notion that the elite in this country, the top one percent, the ones who have have somehow disconnected, they don't live like ordinary people. Therefore, uh, therefore they just they, they just don't care about they don't care whether the government is effective for ordinary people. Oh my goodness! It's hard even to know where to start. Uh, these these perc these percentages are so are so tragic. I, I recently did a, a, a column based on uh, Mark Twain's statement that there are three kinds of lies: lies, damn lies, and statistics. Right. And and these percentage statistics. Let me give you statistics. Uh, Piketty has said, you know, these top people, these top 10 percent. He used his example. You know, they have such disproportionate uh, influence and so forth. They sit atop society and all of that. And, the and, and if you get into the statistics, you discover that 53% of American households are going to be in the top 10% at some point or other in their lives. You're you talk about these percentages as if these are ongoing, the same set right. of people in this, right. this bracket, that bracket. And uh, most Americans do not stay in, stay in the same 20% bracket, bracket for, one for, for more than one decade, so much less for life. So it's largely a life cycle. You're poor when yes. you're young, and you're doing fine they, they, when you're older. That's, yes, yes, and, and there's nothing mysterious about that. Probably most people in this country, uh, you know, when they started out as uh, uh, entry-level jobs, right. were not making what they're making when they're 40 years old. Right. Uh, heaven knows I was being paid $2 a day to deliver groceries and depended on tips for the rest. All right. Staying with inequality for just a moment because it's such a big theme in the current electoral cycle. Once again, wealth, poverty, and politics. Quote, the welfare state, which, by the way, is the recourse of virtually everybody who's concerned about inequality. Let's redistribute from the rich to the fine. So we expand the welfare state. And you argue, quote, the welfare state reduces the incentives to develop human capital and receiving the products of other people's human capital, that is getting money from the rich, if you're poor, is by no means as fundamental as developing one's own human capital, close quote. What is human capital and why does the welfare state suppress the incentives to develop it? Well, human capital is the ability to create the material things that constitute wealth. Uh, people have been puzzled by the fact for a long time, that after a major war with huge uh, destruction, once peace is restored, uh, the economy gets restored often in, in, a, in a very few years. I think Western Europe after World War II, uh, you know, everything that was, that was there was, was bombed. Uh, and they wondered why, how, how can that be? Uh, and John Stuart Mill explained this back in the middle of the 19th century, that uh, the material things are going to be used up and wear out uh, whether there's a war or not. And so it's really the ability to reproduce, to, to operate those things, to maintain them, uh, and then reproduce them as necessary. That's the real wealth. And so when you destroy the physical wealth, 
you, you really haven't done as much as if you destroyed the, the, uh, the human capital. A classic example, uh, in the 1970s, Uganda decided that the uh, Gujaratis from India uh, were just too wealthy and uh, controlled too much of the economy. They, they, they sent them out and they wouldn't let them take their wealth with them. And so the Gujaratis arrived, mostly in England, uh, destitute. And the Ugandan government has taken over all this material stuff. Uh, you know, over a period of a relatively few years, the Gujaratis were prosperous in England and the Ugandan economy collapsed because they didn't have people who could do what the Gujaratis were doing. And so they, they no longer had the same production. It's also one of the problems with trying to uh, finance things by confiscating uh, the wealth of the wealthy. All you can confiscate are the, is the material wealth. You cannot confiscate the human capital. So the true wealth, the enduring wealth, mm -hmm. the wealth that leads to wealth in the material world is between people's ears. Absolutely. And why does the welfare state, why does the welfare state suppress incentives for poor people to develop their? Of course, human you, you, don't, you, you, you don't. You don't. You can. You can live off what other people have produced. And it's not just the welfare state. It, it's true among nations. Uh, Spain, for example, during its uh, heyday in the 16th, 17th century, uh, it received gold and silver literally by the ton, something like 200 tons of gold. If you can imagine, gold is normally measured in ounces. So they get 200 tons of it from the Western Hemisphere colonies. They get, I think, some 1,800 1800 or something uh, thousand uh, ounces of silver. Uh, and so Spain didn't have to develop its human capital, and it didn't. It bought whatever it wanted because it had all of this. But when all of that money was spent, and the, the colonies broke free and so on, Spain had nothing. And so Spain is today one of the poorest countries in Western Europe. And that's just what the Saudis are afraid of right now. And that's happening in Saudi Arabia. It's already happening in Saudi Arabia. Here, nature has given out to Saudi Arabia all this, all this wealth. Great. Uh, the elite don't have to work. They live in fa have fabulous uh, wealth. The ordinary Saudi doesn't have to do very much because the government subsidizes his uh, uh, housing, it subsidizes all kinds of things. And so over half the people in Saudi Arabia are people, are foreigners who are in the, in the Saudi uh, uh, workforce. And so they don't have to develop any, any human capital. If you go back some centuries earlier, when the Middle East was really uh, uh, one of the most advanced part of, parts of the world, they hadn't yet discovered uses for petroleum. And so they had to work for everything, and they worked for it, and they, and, and they got and, and that and was the period the, where we get the great scholarship. That's right. That's right. Because they're, they're okay. All right. Another, <clears throat> another theme in wealth, poverty, and politics, which is a theme in the wider world, black lives. Mm. Quoting wealth, poverty, and politics, quote, those who have promoted the prevailing social vision in which lags, gaps, or disparities to the detriment of black people are the fault of white people, are trapped in the corollary that these lags, gaps, or disparities should disappear once those other people are constrained by civil rights and policies, mm -hmm. uh, civil rights laws and policies. But nothing of the sort has happened. White people bind themselves to behave better by passing civil rights laws, and black lives should improve. But nothing of the sort has happened, you argue. In material terms, there has been some improvement, but that, in, that improvement uh, began long before the civil rights laws were passed, from uh, 1940 to 1960. 1940, 87% uh, of black families in the United States were in poverty. Uh, 87%. 87. 1960, 
uh, it's 47. So there's a decline of 40 percentage points in that 20-year period. In one, in a generation and a half. Yeah, say, and this is before the, the welfare state comes in under Lyndon Johnson in the form of the war on poverty, the civil rights laws, and so forth. Now, over the next 20 years, from 60 to 80, the rate, rate of poverty among uh, black families goes down an additional 18 percent, which is fine, but it's the continuation of a pre-existing trend at a slightly lower rate. So it's not, and, and yet it's credited in the media and even in academia, it's credited usually to the civil rights laws and to the Johnson war on poverty. But of course, that, that this, this was just a continuation of the previous uh, trend. What, what's real, what really turned bad were the things, the social degeneration that occurred over that period. Uh, I could go on for days about the social degeneration, but let me give you just one quick example. When I grew up in Harlem in the 40s and 50s, I never heard a gunshot. Now, I'm sure someone fired a gun somewhere in Harlem, but it was not such a pervasive thing that you had to hear it. You know, uh, I have relatives in Washington. I asked them the same question, people in my generation. Growing up in did, Washington, D.C. Yes, and, and low-income uh, black neighborhoods. Did you ever hear a gunshot when you were growing up? And the answer was no. I have relatives in North Carolina. I asked the same question, no. And now, uh, you know, people in housing projects especially, they put kids, some of them, in, uh, to bed in bathtubs so that they won't be hit by stray bullets in the night. That's what, that's, the, the homicide rate in, uh, in the years that I was growing up, and I was really quite lucky as I went through the research I discovered, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, the homicide victimization rate among black males uh, in, in, the de in the decade of the 1940s uh, declined by 18%. Uh, from, 1940, okay. yeah, from 1950 to 1960, it declined another 22%. And then in, 1960s, uh, in the 1960s, when all these wonderful new ideas in the criminal justice system came in, all of that reversed and it shot up 89% in one decade, wiping out all the progress of the two preceding decades. And you could run through a great number of other things. Uh, the the, the uh, Children raised without, without two parents present. That was about 22% in 1960. One generation later, it was 67%. And it's gone up a little since then as well. And, some, and, the, and now the rate among whites is higher than it was among blacks in 1960. Right. Right. Uh, so, this, so if you look at what actually happens in the wake of these wonderful sounding policies, uh, you see disaster after disaster. All right. So, very important question. Are the wonderful sounding policies simply irrelevant, beside the point, or do they actually play a role in these social pathologies? It would are, be an incredible, it would be an incredible co uh, coincidence. But you, you see, and in fact, and I, I go into this in more detail in, the sec in this uh, second edition in the book, uh, you see exactly the same pattern in, in Britain. And all the things that are, I mean, in fact, right, right down to uh, riots in London, Manchester, and other cities, which read just like riots in Ferguson and Baltimore, and and there's not and and, all, and the things like uh, you know race is not an issue because most of those people are white who are doing all of these things, right down to setting fire to police cars. So so you see the same policies are brought in. And the other, another thing that's very similar, and this gets into human capital again. People are saying, you know, poor people can't rise in, in America anymore. 
Uh, and the data that they use leave out immigrants. Immigrants come here with little more than the clothes on their back. Going here and, and by the next generation, their kids are excelling in school, going off to leading colleges and into professions. Colin Powell, was, uh, his parents were Jamaican, as I recall. Yes. And wasn't he raised in Harlem? He's about two generations. I don't know if was he was raised there. Brooklyn? Uh, York, I don't know where I he recall. was raised. I know he went to college at City College, which is on the edge of, was on the edge of Harlem at that time. is now in the middle of Harlem. Got it. Got it. So, all right, Hillary Clinton, quote, uh, she's, and she, this is in response, she was asked a question by an activist from Black Lives Matter, and here's Hillary Clinton's reply. I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws. You change allocation of resources. You change the way systems operate. You're not going to change every heart, but at the end of the day, we can do a whole lot to change some systems and create more opportunities for people who deserve to have them." Close quote. Is there anything in there that would lead to policies that might actually improve opportunities for African Americans? Easiest question of all, no. <laughs> uh, and, and I noticed that Hillary Clinton and, and many, many of the people who support the welfare state, who incidentally, they all, when they want to help black people, they want to help those black people who are doing something wrong. That is, rioters, uh, uh, ex-convicts, uh, you, you know, they, they, they want to stop the schools from disciplining black kids, who, males who, dis, who, who misbehave in school. I don't hear them concerning themselves about the blacks who are the victims of the people who are doing wrong. Uh, one, of the class, and one of the classic examples to me of a few things that are going very well in, in the ghettos across the country, and that's... Uh, some of the charter schools that have come in, where uh, where the rest, the public schools, the kids are just wiped out. I mean, the kids in those, those ghetto schools often are two or three years behind the national norms and all kinds of stuff. But in some of these ghetto schools, especially those run by the KIPP organization or by the uh, success these charter schools. Char I'm sorry, right, right. Mm -hmm. yes, yeah, charter schools in the ghetto. Right. Uh, they, their kids are scoring at levels equal to, and in some cases better than, that in affluent suburbs where the kids come from family who's making 200 grand a year. And you would think, my God, this is something that ought to get a lot of attention. The welfare state supporters are fighting against charter schools. The NAACP is fighting against charter schools. Uh, the teachers unions give a lot of money to politicians. They give money to the NAACP. Moreover, if you have uh, people coming in with charter schools, then you don't have the local political ward healers, as it were, controlling all these resources that they can use to re reward their friends and punish their enemies. And so therefore, they want to control of the schools because the schools are a source of jobs. Uh, whether or not the kids learn anything is not their concern. I think, I think it's the most cynical thing you can find in American politics are those uh, people who are making themselves big champions of blacks, and yet who are fighting against it. the one, one school, kinds of schools, that are offering a way out of poverty for millions of black kids. I've already quoted Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump, <clears throat> this past summer, quote, the Democratic Party has failed and betrayed the African-American community. Democratic crime policies, education policies, and economic policies have produced only more crime, 
more broken homes, and more poverty. I, Donald Trump, I am asking for the vote of every African-American citizen struggling in our country today who wants a different future. Jobs, safety, opportunity, fair and equal representation. Close quote. Give that a grade. Well, for, for intentions, uh, well, for, as a summary of what has happened in the past, I would give it an A. Uh, as an uh, uh, indication of what will or will not be done if uh, Donald Trump becomes president, who knows? Who knows? Is there any place where you see hope? It, I, I do see hope in th things like, like the charter schools. People, most people are unaware that not only do charter schools educate kids from the very same ghetto neighborhoods, in many cases, and I believe in most cases, they educate them in the same buildings. Oh, really? Yes. And so you'll have the, you know, like, like, like the public school 185, and they're on uh, the first, second floor, and up on the third floor, there'll be the kids from the charter school. Of course, they don't, they don't usually build buildings for charter schools. I mean, it's too expensive. And the kids on the first three floors, you know, are scoring down below the 10th percentile. And the kids on the third floor are scoring above the 80th and sometimes 90th percentile. And they're in the very same building. And they, and they were not chosen by skimming the cream. They were chosen by lottery. Okay. Some final questions. <clears throat> Again, I'm going to quote from Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. Quote, at a dire time in my life as a young man... <laughs> I pawned my one suit in order to get money to be able to eat. After emerging from a pawn shop on the Lower East Side of New York, which was, predominantly, which was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood at the time, I went into a nearby eating place and ordered a knish and an orange soda. Many years later, I would eat at the Waldorf Astoria, in Parisian restaurants, and in the White House. But no meal ever topped that knish and orange soda. Close quote. And none ever will. And none ever will. <laughs> how? And I didn't sit there thinking about how somebody else, somewhere else, was eating in more opulent places, more high-toned meals, and so on. I was glad to have that condition already. Well, you're answering my question, I suppose, because my question is, how is it that Tom Sowell, how is it that you went from a situation that was so dire that you had to pawn some clothes to eat mm -hmm. to becoming author of over a dozen books. I know you won't like this, but beloved figure, every time we do a show with you and we put a, you're a rock star. Uh, yeah. People just, how, so how, what enabled you? Was it something you learned at, at home? Where did you, well, How yeah. did you decide to work hard and develop the talents you, you had know, instead you know, of messing around in politics? You could have become an activist and wasted your life by your own argument. I didn't have any political talent, first of all. <laughs> so that's, forget that part. Uh, someone the other day was saying that, uh, that, uh, someone, that, that some politician said he wanted to sort of ease the pain of people in poverty. And he said, actually, the pain of poverty is what got many people out of poverty. Okay. Okay. Wealth, poverty, and politics once again. The mundane progress driven by ordinary economic and social processes in a free society becomes dramatic only when its track record is viewed in retrospect over a span of years. So we look back over the 20th century and we conclude what? 
Well, for example, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, I'm trying to think. I think only 10% of American homes had flush toilets, and only 3% had electric lights. Uh, and so, and, and that was improved not as a result of a lot of noise, demonstrations in the streets, great pronouncements from uh, uh, eloquent speakers, but by the ordinary market processes that have gone on for years. And what do we make of government? What do we make overall of government attempts to boost economic growth, get people out of poverty, promote education, if you look at the whole sweep of the 20th century? Good heavens. Well, uh, let, let me give just one example of the Federal Reserve System. Federal Reserve System was brought in to prevent uh, severe deflation that could lead to downturns in the economy. Uh, for the first 150 years of this country, the federal government did absolutely nothing when there was a downturn in the economy. The last time that happened was uh, 1921, where the unemployment rate was 12%. The Harding administration did nothing except cut back on government spending because there wasn't enough money coming in to cover it. Imagine that. Uh, the next year, unemployment was down to about 6%. And the year after that, it was down another 2 or 3%. And nobody did anything. Uh, uh, Reagan in 87 would be another one. Another one. Uh, the one-day record for the drop in the stock market that was set in 1929 was broken in 1987. The reason we don't remember it is that Reagan did nothing and the economy recovered. Fast, as I recall. Yes. Uh, people talk about the, how the government has to intervene because you had, you know, 25% unemployment during the Great Depression. And what they don't understand is there was not 25% unemployment until after the government intervened. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the stock market crash occurred in October 1929. Uh, unemployment peaked at 9% two, two months later, started drifting downward, and by June 1930, it was down to 6.3%. That's, that's when the first major federal intervention in the economy occurred to get us out of that, that situation. And that was the Smoot-Hawley tariff very much along the lines of what Donald Trump is talking about. Within six months, that downward drift of unemployment reversed. It was, it was into double digits six months later for the first time, and it stayed in double digits the entire decade of the 1930s, every single month. So uh, if you look at the facts, they show, show a very different picture than what you get from the rhetoric. We've spoken we spoke at the beginning in particular about the large themes in the book. You never quite put it this way in Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. But it seems to me that there's an implicit argument in the book that if you pay enough attention to the facts, that if you develop enough historical awareness of economic development as it actually unfolds, then you end up recognizing all that we receive from those who have gone before. Oh, yeah. It almost seems to me this is a book, in some implicit way, this is a book about character, about the importance of humility and gratitude. Mm. Is that fair? Yes, yes. I mean, 90% of what we have is because of other people who went before us. Got it. And that's why isolation is so deadly. If you're isolated in places where you don't get that benefit, you're lost. Uh, Angelo Cotovia, who used to be a a fellow here at Hoover, 
once said, you know, you can draw a line in Europe starting at the, the Baltic. And he showed, said how, how the, how the boy, where, where it should go and, and all the way down to the Adriatic. He said, and a baby born on the, this side of that line will have a very different life from a baby born on the other side of that line. And, and that's not due to merit or evil or whatever. It's due to the fact that the development has never, economic development has never been equal. It's been grossly unequal. And if you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're in big trouble. Great. Tom, would you do something? Would you, would you close the program by reading some of your own words? If I still agree with it. <laughs> edit, edit as you go along if you'd like. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Thomas Sowell reading from Wealth, Poverty, and Politics. It is by no means obvious why we should prefer trying to equalize incomes to putting our efforts into increasing output. People in general, and the poor in particular, seem to vote with their feet by moving to where there is greater prosperity rather than where there is greater economic equality. Rising standards of living, especially for those at the bottom economically, have resulted not so much from changing the relative sizes of different slices of the economic pie, as from increasing the size of the pie itself, which has largely been accomplished without requiring heady rhetoric, fierce emotions, or bloodshed. Does it not matter if the hungry are fed, if slums are replaced by decent and air-conditioned housing, if infant mortality rates are reduced to less than a tenth of what they were before? Are invidious gaps and disparities all that matter? In a world where we are all beneficiaries of enormous windfall gains that our forebears never had, are we to tear the society that created all this apart because some people's windfall gains are greater or less than some other people's windfall gains? Dr. Thomas Sowell, author of Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.